covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Joe from Celebrate.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from Germany in English only. Right now, as you can tell from either the sound or the other looks, I'm right now traveling, seeing friends and family shortly before Christmas. See, ugly Christmas weather. And just want to give a big shout out to our um, enabler, investinhassen.com. Without them, it wouldn't be possible to do this. Go down here in the show notes and learn more about them. I would say thank you. Thank you to all the guests we had in 2019. You guys are amazing. You're now going to participate in a real tradition, so to say Christmas tradition of StartupRate.io. Every year I talk to a lot of people, get their input, um, invite a few guests and we get together and discuss the startup news, especially fintech news uh, from the last year. Usually it ends up like I'm doing a lot of preparations, get all the news together in the show notes, and then my guests start discussing. And actually, that's so fascinating. So I don't want to interrupt them. And we usually get a talk show out of it. Right now, it's the 25th of December. This is going to be published. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy Christmas and the New Year's Eve. And since this is a very special time around, Christmas and New Year, we're going to interrupt a little bit our regular publication schedule and publish more than the usual amount you'll see on our YouTube blog and on your favorite podcast or streaming service. Looking forward to see you again in 2020, where we have a lot of plans. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Frohe Weihnachten, Guten Rutsch, Feliz Navidad, Shanganje Kweiler. Bye bye. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Joe from StartupRate.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from Germany. Right now I'm here with four other people split across Germany and the world from the Middle East. And we are doing right now a live recording of the FinTech review. So forgive me if there's some trouble with the settings of the Skype screen. Uh, we just already had problems uh, with that and I tried to correct it. Um, let's go to our guests, guys. Hey guys, here are the troubles I've been telling you about because at one hand the video resolution jumped and with it the windows, as you can see here in the video, as well as we had some trouble in the audio because sometimes it sounded pretty much like this. Uh, the bang, the bang, the bang. So I decided to go with the Skype recording I started a few minutes into all of the discussion we you only missed the introduction of the respective interview partners as well as the um, start of the discussion concerning neobanks versus incumbent banks we start there almost in the middle of the sentence i'm very sorry for frank he's been added by the automatic skype recording pretty small down here but nonetheless you can see him and what he says is audible side the fact that we have a couple of hundreds so so i would still say we are in a very very early phase of the whole change uh, uh, in banking um, the traditional banks still stand um, they still have a relevant balance sheet. They still 
own many, many customers. Um, but you can see here and there um, that especially the large platform players, so especially now, now Apple um, in, in Germany, um, once they enter the market, they gain fast traction on the usage of their service. And to me, if I then look and think about fintech, what fintech basically has done so far, uh, it wakened up and prepared for the large platforms. And, and banks now understand that there is a real threat, but the real threat comes when the large platform apply uh, uh, services and the whole thing obviously starts with payments. Um, while it's very difficult to earn money with payments because you need billions of transactions in order to make a profitable business out of it. Right. And and therefore, let's say I would say we are still in very, very early phase, but let's say the the party of the first three, four years is a little bit over right now. Uh, many fintechs see how difficult it is to develop a sound banking business, especially as Paula said, if you don't have a clear understanding of your profitability and how to, to, to achieve profitability and, and also scale it up. Exactly. I would just not say profitability, but how to achieve it, because it is clear that when you are a startup, uh, you may not be profitable for a while. That's okay. But you need to have a consistent strategy and you need to be capable of explaining the strategy to understand how to grab a higher margin relationships with clients. And there is not being, uh, um, if you like, an app store for APIs uh, or a hub for financial products, because this is not the way most of the people consume financial services so far. Yeah, I agree. I, I call it the path towards profitability. If you are a startup at some point in time, you need to know what the path towards profitability is, because otherwise, at some point in time, uh, people will pull the plug. One thing I want to differentiate here, um, you've talked about uh, partnerships and, uh, well, relationships between fintechs and corporates. There's the big big divide here I'm seeing out there. There's like one uh, group of startups that are basically just software vendors. Like if you take a look what Clark does with RMV insurance, they're basically selling tailor-made versions of their product to those uh, corporates. And that's not a joint innovation partnership, whatever you call it. Um, and then there, then there are these, uh, let's say, intrapreneurship kind of events where uh, uh, startups go into corporates and basically just sell the product outside of the corporate, like with ING had that with Smart Smartshare, I think. Um, so it's a there's different models out there, and they are just by the um, way this works, like by the way the fintech boards on um, completely different types of beasts. Like 
uh, if, um, if a large corporate goes out there and is looking for a solution and has like five to 10 startups that are in the space, then that's kind of a vendor, vendor relationship. And then we're not talking about any fintech innovation kind of sense. We're talking about somebody just wanting to buy a solution. I think we're, that's past just fintech, what we are usually used to talking about. That's established companies selling a product. And what I'm finding really interesting is that it's a sign of maturity that is happening out there with these different types of industries. It happens in our industry. It happens in the industries of uh, yeah, insur insurance. It happens with lending. Like you've seen that with, uh, I think, Vamo that, that have built a solution back then. They are now sold last year or so on. Um, so that's something that has changed. And we will see more of that because the solutions, like the categories, It, it is, doesn't become wider, much wider. You don't see like 10 different uh, types of fintech companies coming up next year, as you've seen the two, uh, past two, three years. Um, but you rather see a professionalization of how to sell those, how to go up market. Uh, Luca, you are running uh, a fintech that is also running a fintech that is also you also got bought by or you co-founded one you also got bought by talking about platform new types of fintech talking about platform new types of fintech and would you consider yourself as a software vendor or something as a bank or as a software vendor or something in between Yeah, I mean, so I, I'd kind of look at it uh, as the conversation was earlier, uh, the types of fintechs that are out on the market. So there's there's the ones that are trying to essentially find product market fit where they're building a completely new solution, like, a, let's say, a personal finance management tool or a PFM, right, um, versus an existing product that just made much better, which is, for example, a Penta, right? So, you know, Deutsche Bank and, and Commerce Bank already basically do provide a bank account, uh, but we're fighting more on the execution risk uh, our business model is based on. It's not necessarily based on a product market fit, right? So I think that the first way to look at it as is, are you building a fintech that is about execution risk within the team or is it about product market fit, right? Because we're not recreating the wheel um, or essentially it's not very creative if you want to put it very bluntly. On the other hand, our relationship with, so, I mean, we're, we're definitely the execution risk type of company is what I want to emphasize. Um, the, the, the other part of the piece is, are we a platform? Are we a bank? Uh, how do we look at it? So for our customers, we're the bank. Uh, our customer support is done by us. Um, we charge our customers. So, you know, everything is going through us, even though we, we do have Solaris Bank in the background. Um, but the reality is, is that Solaris Bank is basically our outsourcing partner that develops and builds stuff for us. So Solaris Bank has a couple of dozen people that actually mainly, or if anything, only work on, on Penta stuff, right? Because we are their largest um, SME banking partner, uh, both for onboarding as well as for different products. So, the, I mean, the way it, it's, not, it's on, I think it's irrelevant how, how I look at it. It's more important how the customer looks at it. And uh, that's it's a pure bank to to business relationship. I really feel Paolo wants to say something about it. He he was moving on his seat, right? No, no, no. I was listening carefully. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's that's really the crucial difference. But I find that the the conversation earlier was was interesting about um. But I, I keep repeating the the execution risk because a lot of these 200 fintechs died. 
some of which died because of execution risk, which is fair. And, you know, it's name of the game. And uh, the other ones that died also probably died because, you know, they were building something that people simply didn't need. So it's it's really finding, you know, what do people need and, you know, and uh, either making it better, like in the Penta case where we just basically copied an existing business model and made it 10 times better or, um, you know, or you go into the other path. So what do you guys think are the solutions um, the clients will need from especially fintechs in the future i would guess uh lucas says a good sme banking i would say mario says a good billing invoice financial management solution but what would frank and paolo say well i go first i think that clients need the transparency across the board whatever is the relationship with a fintech or with a banking and insurance institution transparency means understanding the cost the incentives and the consequences of every transaction and this is where i guess technology can really help because it might facilitate the industrialization of this uh, process, which is the only one that can generate trust and value for final clients. Yeah, I, I, I have a slightly different perspective. So for daily banking, customers just don't mind. So the Uber or my taxi or or hello approach is the approach we will see going forward which basically for example means for payments payments just happen as you use the the uber as you use amazon for buying stuff the payment method is somewhere in the back you just don't know once you have configured it and and that is the future of daily banking and whoever does the service for the merchant, for the shop, for the app, the customers don't know because they are not interested as long as it works properly because the brand will be the brand of the retailer. That's for, for the daily use. But, but there's a other thing, which is if you are, if you have money, um, and you, you, you need to somehow save money and uh, prepare for retirement and all these things, and then it's a different thing. Then it's about uh, transparency, understanding, costs, uh, but also about diversity and, and risk reduction, so portfolio management. And, uh, uh, and then so a matter of fact, uh, let's say, if you look at uh, um, not only in Germany, globally, um, there are not so many people who have that actually need because they just don't have money they can invest. Um, uh, that's actually for most of the people uh, the case. Um, and only, let's say, 20% uh, uh, of the overall population are targeted to, to that, uh, let's say, portfolio methods and other things. But but of course, these are the ones who are also will be profitable. And I think, and that's a big difference. Uh, over the last 150 years, more or less, banks and traditional banks were the only ones mainly uh, providing solutions to that for, for mass markets. Um, 
let family office and other things aside. But but going forward, uh, these solutions will come from the ones with the most trusted brands, and that may not necessarily traditional banks anymore. I think every significant platform player has now a fair chance to get also a part of that share of the business. There is something that we can say though here, Frank, uh, and is the needed link between the daily banking uh, and the non-daily banking, if you like. Um, I have uh, worked with uh, a guy that ran a little PhD research on 1,000 clients of uh, challenger banks uh, here in Europe. And that research is targeted to understand why most of the people that have uh, a challenger bank relationship don't move the salary there. And uh, a very high number, which is above the 90% of people that responded to the question, why didn't you move your salary there, was because they're not too big to fail. So we don't trust them. So now you see, since payment is the entry point uh, of a relationship, even though payment becomes a bit more contextualized uh, inside the non-banking relationships, if you do not resolve this problem, you will not be able to transform a challenger bank from an hyper-volume business, which can hardly survive facing the competition of uber-volume businesses, which are the Amazon and the Alibabas of the kind, into something else. So exactly this point is where most haven't thought through properly, and that's where most are, in the end, going to fail their fintech journey. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and that's why I believe that the brands which already have the trust are and already have the customer uh, connection um, and who are going into financial services are in a very good position. So, for yeah, because example, because trust and reputation are slightly different. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, but look at PayPal with 20 million um, accounts in Germany. At this point in time, they don't offer salary accounts and they don't have an IBAN. But let's start thinking if they introduce that into their, let's say, kind of wallet for Germany. Um, I can think of that there are not few Germans who um, gained enough trust into PayPal as well as positive experience um, uh, to give them more of their share of wallet. Good point. But is this really a discussion? Like, uh, you, you just said share of wallet. Um, is that really a point where you have more than like your main wallet? Like, I'm a, I'm a like, I'm in talks with uh, our employees below 25. I'm in talks with uh, basically everyone uh, interested in the fintech space that has like all the challenger banks on their phone. Uh, I myself have all the Google Pay options there. I always, always use my main preferred method, and so is everyone I know. So uh, obviously, anecdata, but is there really a share of wallet there to have to be had? Yep. I think there's yes. just because, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is. Look at today, PayPal just does not offer that I put my salary there, um, and PayPal does not offer um, assets, does not offer mortgages. And if they would do it as effective, they, they don't do it in Germany. Don't get me wrong. 
they they start doing stuff in the US uh, and they are for, for example they are um, for SME lending they are number five in the US market this is really something um, so uh, and nobody realized <laughs> that that at least nobody here in Europe so um, so what I'm saying is uh, there are players who, who may so so right now as a customer you don't have the choice because they don't just don't offer the product as, as for instance my main option to pay is paypal simply because paypal and yeah, yeah, to PayPal pay. is gigantic yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. gigantic masterpiece of a strategy to roll out google pay on android uh, via mastercard and so on was brilliant um, and yes over time paypal will go into these markets as they will. The question goes back to who owns the platform? Like, uh, who owns my, like back then in the marketing days, who owns the eyeballs? When I have my phone in my hand, who I'm gonna pay with? Who's gonna be the first on the screen when it comes to either the payments, but also like the more interesting high, high margin uh, stuff. Like, if I'm already having my money in my PayPal account or in my Neobank account or wherever I have it, is to 80% chance the place where I'm going to invest stuff, where I'm going to park my money, where I'm going to buy whatever solution I'm going to have with that. I'm, I'm, if I'm already at Comdirect, I'm going to get buy my ETFs there. There's, I'm not going to compare that much. The earlier adopters do that, but the majority, the main majority does. So I see this is in that part of platform game that you have to own the mindshare. It's what we see on all platforms as well. Yeah, but I think this is forgetting that most of these products like payments, loans, FX, now, you know, like you said, ETFs and things like that, that's all becoming a commodity, right? So, you know, KYC is falling, you know, becoming super easy, KYB as well, right? So all like regulation is becoming much easier. There's more and more products popping up. And, you know, you know, having having five bank accounts today is, is much more common than it was, ten, you know, 10 years ago because it's much easier. So I think that I don't even know if it is a platform game. I think it's actually more, uh, you know, who's, who has the best product and does somebody have tolerance to have you know, try three or four products because it's so easy to get onboarded and to also close the account. So. Yeah, that's where, where I was rather going to not platform in the sense that a bank is a platform or a different product is a platform, but rather mm -hmm. my phone is my platform, my user interface is my platform. If yeah. I have my main user interface on my phone, then it's there. If I'm a browser a browser using SME, I'm mostly in my accounting software. Of course, I would have to say that, but that's what I see as a platform. Um, it just ha it depends on what state of mind the customer is, because the customer is not always just a private individual who buys his stuff and yeah. stops. Um, there's corporates that have their own let's say, platform where they work from. Some call it SAP. I don't know why, but some buy stuff via SAP. Um, that is something that is currently overlooked that the user interface is what guides the user. And the product is important, but it's not always the deciding factor because the user buys what he can, what he sees, not what he could technically see if he look, presses 20, 20 buttons. Yeah, and, and that can be summarized as the switch cost. You know, what is the price of switching, <laughs> right? So. Yeah, and it is also not 
I, I would guess it's also not uh, one platform taking it all. I, I think I, the discussion right now is exactly what we will see. There, there will be different needs and the ones uh, who serve it most holistically are the ones who have a very good opportunity to, to win many, many customers. So the, the Apple will not win, uh, let's say, Android users, right? So that's a very, very few. So, but, but within the Apple world, right, if they um, increase their offering, now they come with Apple Pay and Apple, Apple Credit Card. And if, if that can be managed in my Apple account, and let's say, and, and that's my primary interface, then for these kind of customers, Apple has a very good login, including probably a lot of financial offerings directly, indirectly um, combined with your offerings. Yeah. And, and there will be other things which are driven by others. So in, for example, Instagram or, or, or even Facebook or Twitter, let's say there are people who are living on these social media platforms. And for them, they, that will be the, the, the way they configure also their financial life. And if there is something they have, trust is, from my point or from my experience, trust is repeated positive experience. So, so the moment you can repeat an experience and it's positive, you create trust. That's why we enter planes, right? Not because we understand the technology, but because we see people going out alive. And once we experience this, and the same from my point of view is true for banking. Um, the, the moment somebody has good experience on Instagram with banking, and that's they lived for the last 15 years, so the ones who basically raised up with it, why should they not use it if the service is good? Okay, I think we're mixing up a little bit some concepts here because uh, we need to understand that when it comes to e-commerce, we can discuss marketing. When it comes to banking and insurance, we need to discuss advice because the real source of revenues uh, for financial intermediation is the asymmetry of information. And if you position the uh, banking offers on the asymmetry of information line, you have uh, on the left side where it's less asymmetrical, so more symmetrical, payments, then you have credit, then you have investing, and then you have insurance, which is the most asymmetrical. What does it mean? It means that if I tell you, click on my app, and I give you 1,000 euros, net of commission, zero interest rate, to give me back the money whenever you want, be sure that a lot of people will sign up. But I end up with a huge risk management problem, which I don't want. We've seen it already with a lot of peer-to-peer -peer lenders in China. If instead I tell you, click on this app and give me 1,000 euros, I will invest into a marketplace portfolio. A lot of people out there will start frowning, thinking, I need to talk to somebody, and not many will basically sign up because it's more asymmetrical. So therefore, I need to understand that where does the motivation of somebody to comes from when it comes to higher margin banking or insurance solutions? Because if I want to succeed in fintech, I need to digitize the relationship. Making things just convenient, creating a good user experience is okay, but it's not going to lead to a transformation on the way people do effectively banking for the most important elements for their life 
therefore the financial services industry. That's why I insist that the platform discussion was not thought through because it was really product oriented. In any case, all of those platform discussions I saw ended up into marketing of products. But this is not the way people consume because they call it marketing, but instead is a pushed oriented mechanism that is based upon relationships. They want to do what? Well, they need to resolve the problem that money is emotional. And so far, people look for relationships, which are human, to overcome this emotional element. Now, banks can use or abuse, fintech can use or abuse this element and concept. I hope with transparency that people will not abuse it by use it for the benefit of clients. But that's exactly the difficulty we have today to see the scale up of fintech offers to become not just the Uber volume businesses, which can be attacked by big tech players, but to become differentiated value proposition that digitize the relationship with clients. That will be the unicorn. I think there's like there was something in there which um, is something that we're currently heavily looking into. Um, there is this trend of Generation Z kids in China that are riding the wave of TikTok to basically create a presence, like they're creating a persona and writing a meme or whatever comes up and already pushing and selling via TikTok products and already do automated in the back end, back end their accounting. They already get a bank account provisioned at that point in time. Like their whole business, in a sense, just starts and, starts and is created on TikTok. If like... All, I expect all of you to know TikTok. It's something mm -hmm. like Instagram, just hipper, nicer for the young kids. That is something that basically is a very, very, very highly valuable business model. Because at no point in the chain was there any comparison to any other offering. Like there was no other T-shirt printing company in the chain. There was no other bank account provider in the chain. You were taking, you were, like you said, you're using the information asymmetry of how to build such a business completely from the beginning through the end and via that way enabling somebody to do something which you wouldn't have done before via the uh, via employing okay. financial services via employing all the digital business models but in the end you end up with a financial product they are lending because they need to buy uh, they need to pay for the just-in-time production and so on Uh, all of these kinds of products are in there. They are much more expensive than on the open market, but they're enabling them. Yes, but you see, um, we are talking e-commerce here, if you like. I have a question yes. for you guys and my answer. Do you believe Amazon is a distribution channel of products on the Internet? It is not. When Jeff Bezos in the 1990s was asked on 60 Minutes, what is Amazon? He said, Amazon is not a distribution channel of books on the Internet. So the journalist asked, so what is Amazon? At the time, uh, some of you are younger, Frank is older, so you will remember that uh, he was only selling books. So he said, you see, the publishers are sending me letters complaining, saying that uh, um, I don't understand marketing because they allow the users of Amazon to put positive and negative reviews. So they say, only publish the positive reviews, right? It's good marketing, we will sell more. And he said, no, they don't understand. And they don't understand because uh, They are not my client. 
So Jeff Bezos said, I'm not a distribution channel on the internet of their books. So the question is, can a bank be a distribution channel of financial products and digital? So he said, what am I then? I am an advisor of my clients because I help them to understand which is the best book to buy. Because since they cannot touch those books, by adding positive and negative reviews, I create a mechanism that builds trust on the fact that the book will be good. So then he said, the moment I start with professional books and then I move into novels, then I can go forward and I can start selling more products because then I've built the trust. And so I can use analytics in order to optimize the relationship. But you see, in essence, he had to resolve the initial problem of creating trust on people. They never used the medium to do something. Now, for us today, it's obvious because if you create something on the internet, many people might start trusting that because now they got used to. But at that time, that was not the case. So what happens with TikTok is that these people are basically building trust in a different way and they're used to do that so they can buy these products even though they have higher prices because they create that element of participation. But this is way more complicated for financial services. That's what I'm saying, because it doesn't necessarily start that way. In financial services, the psychological play of people is very different, at least when it comes to products with high margins. Now, since those products are getting more and more commoditized, that is the drama for everybody. It's good for the consumers. But at the same time, if you do not build a relationship with the consumers or the banking clients, they themselves will not be able to onboard on digital. So they will be, in a sense, left out. So we need to make sure that we resolve this problem. There are techniques for doing that, but this is not about user experience. Yeah, I, I, I agree and disagree. I had exactly these discussions in 2002 with all the heads of the departments uh, for mortgage, for example. They said, mm -hmm. you cannot buy a mortgage uh, without having, a, a, let's say, a, a discussion and a good advisory at with a with a banker and then and i said uh, that's not true you you can and by now we know that Frank, um, most Frank, I, mortgages are just bought Frank, but remember I remember what i said the asymmetry symmetry towards asymmetry i said payment credit is loans and mortgages investment and insurance. Now, when it comes to payment and mortgages, banks are not making money. With zero interest rates, especially in Europe, after the price for risk, there's no value for the shareholders. They cannot even support the risk for those relationships. So mortgages can be very poor because you know you're buying a house and you know that if you pay 10%, it's worse than paying 5%. But banks are not making any money there. And there's nothing that they can make money there because interest rates are too low and the prices are too compressed, and the cost of capital is too high. That's why all banks are trying to move the other direction towards the intermediation margin. But you need to find a way to make the two together, that is the planning story, because you cannot drop the primary relationship with your clients, which is very sticky. And these sticky relationships are the salary and payments that comes with, the mortgage, right, if it's more relevant than loans in a sense, and then you've got retirement or everything that relates to that. And I can add uh, as well listening. You see, this is exactly the strategy of Goldman Sachs, uh, if you look at that carefully. And that differentiates Goldman Sachs, uh, even though it's a difficult journey from most of the challenger banks. Because the challenger banks have these problems of having client relationships on payments, but not being capable of onboarding salaries. So having a difficulty of moving up into relationships to sell higher 
merging products that come with the relationships. But what did Morgan Stanley um, Goldman Sachs do? Well, Marcus clearly is uh, a digital onboarding on clients, uh, is like a challenger bank, you've got some sort of personal loans and so on and so forth. But then they got ICO. ICO is uh, uh, a company that provides payroll for employees, like they have the Google employees. Now, why does payroll matter? Because the moment payment and everything has the gets contextualized, you don't see the brand anymore, you will still receive every month an email saying Goldman Sachs email, this is your salary. And when you look at that, you see what people do with the 401k that is retirement or health insurance. They have two relevant relationships for US population. But then that is when Apple added the Apple card, not because it's big technology, but because the moment they have these three pieces, uh, digital payments, uh, the non-banking relationship for the salary, and the onboarding uh, on a challenger bank solution, they can tell the ICO clients, hey, I see you have your salary here, and your salary is with this bank, such and such. What about you move your salary to Marcos, and you can get the Apple credit card? So you see that that's the only way where they can grab primary relationships. But then what they decided to do was to buy United Capital in May for $750 million. Why? Because that is planning. And ultimately, the only way to grab higher margin products with clients and sorry, revenues is to look at the planning mechanism because everything else is commoditizing very fast. You see it with the ETF, uh, you see with uh, the passive investing uh, all across the board. That is a hyper volume business, which is very, very difficult to manage these days. So I think that they have uh, a point of view which is consistent, not sure whether they will be capable of onboarding this on digital the right way, but at least to me, differentiates from many other banks that simply look at fintech in terms of a technical enablement, but did not understand how to basically you know, across all of these uh, elements. Personally, it's sorry, uh, most of the time I've been busy trying to get your uh, windows adjusted. Most of the people who actually will listen to this audio podcast will never see and I will do my best to actually make people who watch the video also not see it. But basically what uh, what would uh, interest me is talking about trust and complexity of solutions and selling them the position of um, Luca as well as Mario because they actually have a hands-on experience in there. Sorry, what, what was the question? Uh, my personal question uh, would be something like how does this calculation relationship and trust versus complexity does actually play into your product offering because I assume highly complex like... Uh, letter swaps or something is where you need a really close personal relationship and very much trust so does this figure in in what you're offering very plain easy to understand product on your platform guys okay i'll go first <laughs> um i mean a i think it depends what type of product you have um i think inherently uh being some sort of bank you i mean you require a bit more trust from your customers than than anything else right but i also don't want to use you know a marketing tool that that you know has a high risk of um of you know going bankrupt so you know so it, it's not only about banking it's also about uh, any product that, that you're using um but i think with with uh, fintechs which deal with people's or businesses money in particular um 
so I mean, for example, like like us, we we follow the same regulations that a Deutsche Bank does, right, or or a Sparkas or anybody else. So deposits are secured up to a hundred thousand. Um, we have the same standards and practices for security and compliance that any other bank does. So I think in that sense, there's there's definitely, um, I mean, there is not a difference, right? Um, in terms of perceiving it, I think that you know, if as long as you you act and and talk talk. Um, and actually behave like like you should. I think that that's something that that um, that builds trust. But I think trust is really just built over time. So we definitely have some customers that probably don't join us because of a trust angle. Uh, but we also see pretty high growth on, on a daily basis for customers that do trust us, right? And that also use us as their main bank account. So I think a lot of this comes comes with with time, essentially, where you balance the two out, right? I would like. Uh... Fastball has been on the market for a little bit over 10 years now. So we have a little bit uh, different view on this, not in the sense that uh, we don't, don't also see that trust is built over time, but also that trust means something different for the different types of services you provide. Fastball started out as a simple tool to write invoices. You could also do the same with Word. Um, By now we do business, we do accounting, like people here doing the accounting actually um, go looking into your finances, knowing about your finances. So there's a different level of trust. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to actually mean that uh, there's money accessible or something. Just um, the knowledge required to um, do a proper type of uh, service is sometimes something where trust is important. And so for us, we kind of saw and witnessed actually a reduction of the necessity of trust, especially in the past five years. Uh, when we started out in 2009, 2010, there was like just doing accounting in the cloud was nearly unthinkable. People didn't want to put any paper online. And the, the, our friends from the States always called it the German angst of the cloud. Um, that is something that, that like disappeared now, dissipates. And every year we see a trend towards neobanks, like especially Penta with lots of customers wanting to board on Penta. Um, so, uh, or Contest or Holby or whoever uh, is currently out there. So um, that is something that is actually of the interest uh, simply because they see, they don't find themselves served in a qualitative manner by the existing solutions and the what can I actually get out of this relationship calculation is something that starts to become much 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 more important you could you could say the customers not only they, they start started to trust everyone less and so the trust of a new one is of a new challenger appearing is just as low as the trust I have of Deutsche Bank. Like if I go to Deutsche Bank and don't get my loan there, I will. I don't care if I get my loan at Smarva, you know. Um, so yeah, and this is what I meant about the commodity at the end of the day. That's the you point. know, a lot of these. Yeah. Mm. So, but it's also trusting the service, right? I don't think just trusting will somebody go bankrupt or not. I think like okay, I. So. I would never open a, a Deutsche Bank account, given that I know the customer service is shit. The you know the product will get are terrible. I can't do anything with it, right? So I think that it's more about trusting. Like, does this product help me solve my problem? Yes. As I would say, we said short. before, banks may not have a good reputation these days, 
but a lot of clients trust them because they are not too big to fail. Okay, so you can keep the money there up to the 100,000. Then you might open up three or four different bank accounts. It doesn't mean that you believe the reputation is nice, but you believe they they are trustworthy institutions, at least when it comes to security for the main elements. Whether this is right or wrong, that can be debatable, but I believe that this is what is exactly happening these days in the head of most of the banking consumers. And if you do not resolve this element, you will not be able to digitize the relationship because ultimately my point is, if fintech succeeds truly, is because it's capable of digitizing the relationship so effectively you don't need the branch anymore. So far, you still need. I would, yeah. I would completely disagree. Like, That's good. I really think fint fintech succeeds because it doesn't overvalue the trust relationship. Like, at the at the first moment, like, it's all maybe a generational topic, but at the moment in time. You could do ID now. You could do uh, all those uh, uh, all those contracts online, and you saw the product quality the same or better than you had with your old trust relationship. The second <laughs> that point in time was when people started losing that the importance of that trust relationship because you actually found out, hey, I got a better deal somewhere else. Hmm, maybe he wasn't looking after me as the way I wanted to. You know, the tr the moment in time I get a better deal with a direct online solution, I start to value my trust relationship with somebody else less. And that is something that where fintechs, you look at the most successful fintechs right now. They are not the ones with the best customer service out there. Like look at N N26, which was in the news with, hey, that customer lost 50,000 euros. And well, it's still one of the fastest growing neobanks. So the, if you can actually decouple How much does it cost make you? use of that. How much and does it cost you? What do you mean? N26. Nothing. Okay. So they cannot go below. So sure. they're very weak. So when, it, when it's free, maybe you don't care about the customer services. You get my point here? But then if you have to pay for something, you better make sure that you have a good customer service so you know how to understand how to make that relationship valuable. The two things don't go together. I would say um, the customer relationship and customer service is part of the equation of product quality at this point. The customer, that's how the customer understands it. And the bar has not been very high to uh, raise that, so or to jump over that. So I really think um, the fintechs that can really work out the best processes to get a cheap customer service, they will win out in the end. I don't think the I'm not a number. I I know this person at this organization really means something to the generation that's out there working right now in spending money, earning money. Yeah, I, I would subscribe what you said. If you look at who was really successful over the last 15 years in Germany, it was ING Diba. And if you ask customers what they value, and that's unbelievable, they say um, the best advice. 
but ING Bieber does not offer advice. But they they deliver almost an error-free service. So a highest service quality and, and customers experience high quality service as good advice. So so that I su fully subscribe what you said. If the customer experience is totally seamless in all the fulfillment and you have a positive, then you think, oh, that's a good bank or that's a good serv financial service offering. W when we talk about insurance, the moment of truth in insurance is the moment you need the insurance. Do they pay? Yes or no? And And if they don't pay, for good reasons because of the contracts and all that stuff then then uh let's say you lose a reputation um and if you pay um uh, even if it's contractually not covered then then then, then you raise and the question is how many of these moments of true as a financial service provider can you generate in order to gain this the customer relationship and i think this is the ones who get that right, whether banks, fintechs, insurance companies, big tech, they are the ones who, who, who will run a successful business. But you see, Frank, it's in your uh, words. They said they gave me the best advice. Now, it is a given that the process needs to be seamless, uh, efficient and effective, even though when I open an app from an airline, for example, it doesn't work well. I'm asking myself, how can it be that in 2019, they're not even capable of making an app for travel that makes any sense, but it still happens. Okay. However, <laughs> nobody said that it is frictionless. That's why I love INGD, but no, they used the word advice. Now we should go back if we don't have time today in the 1990s when they started to understand what advice meant to them when the interest rate were much higher, but what they had to resolve in terms of being successful and create sticky relationship is the advisory role of the digital play that hits on a very specific nerve of clients of financial institutions, which is different than the clients of Nike, Gucci or Bose. That's been that's been very good. Very last good. Words. Last words. Sorry guys. Sorry to, guys. To really to, to pull really the pull the plug on you guys here. I, I just I, love, I just the, love conversation. the conversation. Uh, uh, I've written down, I've written a, lot down a lot of interesting notes, notes, and actually, notes, and actually there was less there was less uh, an annual uh, fintech review, uh, more on uh, discussion of strategy, of strategy how to run a fintech, fintech which is also very interesting for everybody who thought this would be an annual fintech review. Go down here in the show notes. I put together what was happening. What was in happening the in the fintech this year? This year. Uh, we are getting, uh, very, we are getting close very, very close to one hour of hour recording, of recording here. here. Sorry for all technical difficulties. I'm still learning, I'm still with, learning that. with that. I'm still a startup, still a startup as well. Guys, Guys, thank you very much, thank for, you very much for having you. And before you drop out, just one last sentence. What is your expectation for 2024? Whatever, the fintech movies the movies of the next year. Your next hot coffee is a forecast for 2020. Okay, we just disrupted the year-end fintech review of Startup Radio. I hope we will disrupt more next year. <laughs> I, I think this is a very nice, uh, let's say, word. Um, I, I think um, uh, crypto 
becomes more and more relevant. So we see a lot of parameters uh, significantly changing. So, so crypto is becoming more serious. Luca? Um, I, I'd actually say that we're going to see neobanks and fintechs uh, opening up branches and things like that. I think that marketing is going to be a bit more creative. Um, and branches may sound a bit counterintuitive, but I, I think that 2020 will be about um, alternative marketing, let's call it. <laughs> I, I would agree with uh, Luca here. Just thinking of Amazon opening physical stores would be my analogy. Mario, last but not least. I think 2020 is going to be the year with a much larger shakeout. We're going to see lots of, let's say, runways running out without being continued. Um, I think we're at the tail end of that curve and it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen there and who's going to like try to, uh, on the cheap, extend around, uh, lower some valuations. It's, it's going to be fun for investors interested to getting in, I think. Very great last words, guys. It was such a pleasure having you. I would have listened to you for another hour. Uh, my timer says we're now running recording one hour and 42 seconds. Thank you very much for sticking with me. Hopefully you come together next year and we continue our course in how to manage a fintech 101. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yes, Merry completely Christmas. Happy Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. You That's all, folks. Find more news, streams, events, and interviews at www.startuprad.io. Remember, sharing is caring.